hello everyone. It's good to see all of you. Uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings, one of the historical books of the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 8. As Pastor Doug mentioned in Sunday school, uh, when we decided to come to the wedding, I was thinking, having been a pastor for a number of years myself, the uh, burden it is to uh, host a, a wedding on uh, a Saturday and all the work that that involves. And then if you're the minister, to have, you actually have to get up and speak twice on Sunday. So I rarely do this, but I invited myself <laughs> to speak. So I, um, I elbowed my way into the pulpit this morning. And I'm grateful, though, the elders allowed me to do that. So, First uh, Kings chapter 8, which I'll be reading um, from in just a minute. Considering uh, the uh, COVID drama and the, the uh, lockdowns and uh, the race riots and the political uh, chaos uh, and the illness and the loneliness of 2020... I thought there'd be no more appropriate time to preach a cheer and joy-filled sermon about the promises of God. You know, the Bible festers with God's promises. It seems you can turn almost anywhere in the Bible, almost anywhere, and meet one of God's promises. How many promises are there in the Bible? Well, nobody knows for sure. The precise criteria of what constitutes a promise vary. But, but here's an, an interesting fact. Several decades ago, a Canadian schoolteacher by the name of Everett Storms read through the Bible 27 times, specifically counting God's promises. Most people haven't even read the Bible through one time. He read it through 27 times, specifically looking for and attempting to identify a number God's promises. The number he came up with is 7,487. Now, you might dispute that number, but you're not going to read it through that many times to count them, are you? But of this, there can be no doubt. You can find thousands of God's promises in the Bible. If you read nothing but divine promises in the Bible, you'd be occupied for a very long time. If you remove the promises from the Bible... You'd no longer have a Bible. This morning, I'd like to fill the entire space of this sanctuary with God's promises. I want to overawe us, overawe us with his promises. I want to put you on sensory overload. I want to stuff your ears and mind and heart with God's promises. I want us to leave soaked with the knowledge of God's promises. I'm going to quote or cite many Bible verses today, more than you're probably usually accustomed to hearing or that I am accustomed to preaching. There simply will not be time to turn to them all. Don't do that. Please just listen or write down the reference and look them up later. Now, the first is our foundational text in 1 Kings 8. I'm going to read verses 54 to 56 toward the end of the chapter. This is an account you might see there in the notes of Solomon's words at this rapturous 
unprecedented dedication of the building of Israel's first temple. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all his prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. Not one of his promises to Israel given through Moses had failed. God makes a promise and he keeps it. Let's consider the very first promise of the Bible in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, that means crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first gospel message in all the Bible. In the Latin, it's called the Protoevangelium. It's a statement made to the serpent but designed for Adam and Eve to hear. And this is the meaning. The seed of the woman, that's Jesus Christ, would crush the head of the serpent seed. That's Satan and all of his demons, minions. Satan wins the battle in Eden, but God through Jesus Christ will win the war on the cross. Now, the entire rest of the Bible is about how God fulfills that promise. Right there at the beginning. Revel in that promise. It'll head off a great deal of our disappointment and unhappiness if you think about that promise. Friends, we look at our world and it's easy to be weighed down. Grief over the riots and hatred and over oppressive political edicts and over illness and death very close to us, over division in the church, over broken friendships, over grave disappointments. And we might get the impression, well, the world is just that way. The world was made for disappointment. I may as well get used to it. But it wasn't. And we shouldn't get used to it. Evil doesn't sit well in God's world. Evil doesn't sit well in God's world because the world wasn't made for it. In fact, although creation is vulnerable to evil, obviously, it was made to resist evil. Evil is alien to God's good world. You know, if we could personify creation, it would say to sin, keep your filthy hands off me. I'm here to honor my creator. I'll do everything in my power to resist the evil. Sin, you see, is the virus, and creation is the healthy human body. Our bodies, of course, are vulnerable to viruses, as we painfully know. But God made your body and mind to fight back. That's why we get fever. That's why we get chills. That's why we feel weak. Our body is fighting an alien invader. That's the white blood cells, the little soldiers in our bloodstream fighting to get rid of the alien element. If you're a Christian, would you like to know why you're grieved with the evil that you see in the world? Why? Because creation itself is grieved. Creation is getting a fever. It's getting the chills. It's feeling weak and shaky. Creation is fighting the evil, resisting it. By the power of God. We live, my friends, in a God-rigged universe. 
You should take great comfort in that. Evil can win battles, but evil can never win the war. To use another metaphor, to those of you who gamble, and I hope you don't, God has rigged the house. All sin, all evil is failing and will ultimately fail. That failure was graphically displayed on the old rugged cross in the empty tomb 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ triumphed over the alien virus, sin. The alien is still around, but the alien is fighting a losing battle. Take heart today, my friends. Jesus crushed the serpent's head. This world isn't made for sin. God's good world resists sin through the power of Jesus Christ, who is both the Redeemer and the Creator. Never forget that. Jesus isn't just the Redeemer. He's also the Creator. This is His good world. And it doesn't like sin, and it resists sin. One day we'll wake up in this fully healed, fully healed, healthy world, the resurrected heavens, the new heavens, and the new earth, and all of the sin, all of the sickness, all of the evil, all of the rioting, all of the adultery and cheating and deception will be gone. How do we know? God has promised. Now we know that the Bible is God's word to us. Perhaps we usually think of this as God's telling us our responsibilities to him. He's our God and we must worship and obey him. This is what we might call the imperative side of the Bible. This is what God requires. But there's also an indicative side of the Bible. Don't you love all these cool words? Don't worry, I'll tell you what they mean. This simply means God telling us the truth. God telling us reality. That's the indicative. I am the Lord your God. That's the indicative. Therefore, love me and serve me. That's the imperative, you see. He's stating a fact, and then he's stating, here's what you need to do on the basis of the fact. God's promises are a beautiful blend of the indicative and the imperative. God says, here's a promise. Indicative. Then he says, trust me. Act on the promise. That's the imperative. Think now first of the incomparable promises for our individual salvation. When Jesus Christ crushed Satan's head on the cross, he made the way complete for our salvation. We sang about it beautifully today in several of the songs. Because of this, the Apostle Paul could write a promise in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll probably be saved. Is that what your Bible says? No, it says you will be saved. That's a promise. That's not a possibility. If you're here today and you recognize your own sinfulness, if you understand that you stand under God's judgment, righteous judgment, and if you fly to Jesus Christ, if you simply trust him in faith, if you repent of your sins, you will certainly, indisputably, and eternally be saved. Are there any of you here like that today? Don't raise your hand. You've never trusted in Christ. You're not following him. Know that sadly you're under God's judgment. You say, well... I think maybe I'll make it. I'm sorry, you won't make it. You say, well, I'm good enough. You're not good enough. God's standard is that high, and you're like, way down here. We've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. That's the bad news. But gospel means good news. There's bad news, and then there's the good news. The good news is if you cast yourself on Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood on the cross and rose again. If you, by faith, when I say cast yourself, I mean... 
trust him in faith. Give yourself over to him, not through your own works, but cast yourself on him. You'll be gloriously saved and become a part of the kingdom of God. Your sins won't stand against you and you'll be transformed. You say, just like that, just like that. You say, how do you know that? Because of the promise. Because of the promise. This is the word of the Lord. But the salvation promises don't even begin in the New Testament. Jehovah God already told Israel in Isaiah 44, 22 and 23. I've just picked out some of the most glorious texts. There's so many of them. Listen to this one. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. Like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. God's salvation of his people is so glorious that all creation rejoices. All creation. The heavens and the earth and the trees and the mountains praise God for what he has done in Jesus Christ. For you and for me, for his church in the blood of his son. Unbelievers, of course, are overloaded by sin that sometimes seems unbearable. You know, sin is a very heavy burden. It's a horrid burden. This is why unbelievers often turn to drugs and alcohol and other things to divert their attention. They're looking in all the wrong places for relief. Would you like to know where you can find enduring permanent relief? Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a promise. Not a hope, a promise. But I sometimes hear the complaint, well, Andrew, I know Christ died to take away my sins, but I still sin. And the weight seems to come back. Are there any promises for me? You bet there are. The good news for you is in God's promises. The gospel is the good news, but the gospel doesn't end when we are first converted. The gospel is the good news for our entire lives. Here's a promise to Christians from 1 John 1, 9 and 2, 1. My little children, John writes, when he says that, he doesn't mean just little kids. He means believers, children in the faith. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we sin, you say, well, what do I do? Confess your sin and say, Lord, I was wrong to sin. I repent. I turn away from it. Please forgive me. And you know what the promise says? He will forgive you and cleanse you immediately. You say, Andrew, just like that, just like that. You said, that's remarkable. Yeah, God's pretty remarkable. God promises forgiveness to all who come with a repentant heart. Don't fear that he'll turn you away. Here's another promise from the lips of Jesus in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Sandra, I'm afraid that the Lord won't take me. If you come to him with a repentant heart, he's promised. He'll take you. All promises have the future in view. Now, if I do something for you on the spot, there's no need for a promise, right? 
But if I make a commitment to do something for you later, then I'm making a promise, you see. Some of you here work at the bank. You probably know the expression promissory note. It's simply a legal document in which the payer promises to make a payment at a specific time or on demand from the payee. God seems constantly to be handing his people promissory notes. He seems to delight to make promises and to keep them. He made over 7,000 of them in the Bible. He could, of course, do everything for his people right now, but of course that wouldn't inspire faith. One day all of the promises will have been fulfilled when we stand before the Lord. But before then, he's constantly distributing promissory notes. If you read the word of God, you know that. This is, this, in, in many ways, the Bible is a book of promises. It's a promise book. It's full of promises. This is true of salvation. You know, we sometimes say that in the past we were saved. We've been saved. And that's correct. But you know, salvation in the Bible actually occurs in three tenses. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power and pleasure of sin. And one day, praise God, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Past, present, and future. That's a rock-solid promise. It's stated no more powerfully than in Romans 8, 35 to 38 by the Apostle Paul. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's just not a good idea. That's just not theology. That's a promise. Anything life or the devil can throw at you that cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's point. Nothing. Hebrews 13.5 quotes our Lord himself with a text many Christians have taken to heart. I hope you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, never leave you, nor forsake you. That's a promise, and he doesn't qualify it. When everyone else abandons us, he won't leave us. He won't forsake us. At the point of death, if our body is pain-wrapped, He'll be right there with us and inside us. He's with us in our subconsciousness and our unconsciousness. Listen to that. When we're asleep, we're not aware of his presence, but he is aware of ours. Revel then in Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Wherever you go, the Lord goes. And in our deepest, most agonizing tribulation, he is there with us all the way. Now here's the truth. One of the most consoling promises of the word of God is that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus resides within our very bodies. You say, well, Andrew, I don't understand how that can happen. Yeah, I don't either, but you see, God's God. And he can do things we can't understand which means he is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Many of God's promises are contained within a covenant. In fact, we often use that expression. Have you heard that expression, covenant promises? 
A covenant is a sacred agreement bound by an oath. It's much more solemn than what we today call a contract. Marriage is a covenant. When you join the church, you make a covenant. Covenant is not something to be taken lightly. Sanctions are usually attached to a covenant. This means if we keep the terms of the covenant, we're blessed. If we violate the covenant, we call down on ourselves judgment. Covenants abound in the Bible. There's the Mosaic Covenant, you remember at Sinai? There's the Davidic Covenant about kings from his line, David's line. And of course, there is the New Covenant. But I want to touch on briefly the Abrahamic Covenant. God promises Abraham in the Old Testament he'll give him a huge number of descendants, that he'll be a God to them in a special way, and that he will give them a land. That, of course, became Israel. The land called Canaan is called the promised land. Get it? Promised land. Now, you might think this covenant and all the promises apply only to the Jews. But then we come to Galatians 3, verses 16 and 29. Read that sometime. What a glorious chapter it is. We read this. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, it's quoted in the Old Testament, and to seeds, as of many, but of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And if ye are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, the true descendants of Abraham finally narrow down to one person, Jesus Christ. When we're united to Christ, as we pointed out in Sunday school, we become the heirs of all the Abrahamic promises. The promises to Abraham are ultimately made to Jesus Christ and to all of them united to him by faith. You say, Andrew, you seem to be saying that I can read the Old Testament and where God is making promises to his people, I can claim those promises. That's exactly what I'm saying. I want to make one chief point about those promises this morning. They included very physical, visible, earthly blessings. Now, lots of Christians today believe that God has given his promises, but all of his promises are, quote, spiritual. Now, by spiritual, they mean non-physical. That's not what the Bible means. Spiritual in the Bible, when it's speaking in the godly sense, denotes governed by the Spirit, whether that's physical or non-physical. Are you following me there? Say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with money because money's not spiritual. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. If it's surrendered to God and used for His purposes and you're filled with the Spirit, money can be very spiritual and buildings can be very spiritual and human sexuality can and should be very spiritual and food can be very spiritual. Well, I just I thought if it's like if you could touch it or something, it wasn't really that important. No, Jesus Christ actually had a body. It was solid and it was important and it was spiritual. Still, folks say that we can claim all of the non-physical promises, but none of the physical promises. But this is just dead wrong. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. I love this text. Then Peter began to say to him, Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. The disciples, we've given up all of these things, surrendered much of our lives to follow you. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one 
who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Do you see what Jesus did there? He didn't say all the blessings are up in the future. We have great blessings now too. Yes, we will have hardship in this world, but we'll also have blessings, including physical blessings. Listen to this glorious, overwhelming promise in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see the logic there? If God was willing to give his very own son to us on the cross, will he then be stingy about anything else? It's impossible. By all things, Paul doesn't just mean non-physical things. He means all things. Now let me make this very direct and very pointed. If your present car, you see, I can preach about cars. Because if you believe the whole Bible, you preach about anything. If your present car is unreliable, you need a car to get to work or to church, pray, and God will provide a better vehicle. I didn't say he was going to give you a Lamborghini, but he'll give you a car. If you're suffering physically and need healing, claim God's promises. Unless it's his time to take you home, expect God to answer. If your family is expanding or your present residence just isn't working, ask God for a bigger one, a better one, and just assume that he'll answer. Now, this leads us to all of the promises in the Bible about answered prayer. You know, you'd think that God's people would be praying continually. So many are the promises in the Bible that God will answer our prayers. Another thing you might want to do, read your Bible sometime and count the prayers. Thousands of prayers in the Bible and thousands of answered prayers. So, Andrew, you say, I, I would think that there are some answered prayers, but they really are in the minority. You would be wrong about that. When godly people pray in the Bible, most of the time, God answers their prayer. Not always. He didn't promise to answer every single prayer in every single case. But most of the time, when godly people pray, when godly people exercise faith, God answers their prayer. Now, trust me on that. Or don't trust me. Read the Bible for yourself. Jesus declares in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good, give good things to those who ask him? You know what that is? That's a promise. Now, we as earthly fathers or mothers love our children. We delight to grant them what they request, unless what they request is harmful. If it's in our power to fulfill our children's declared desires, we do it. God is even more eager to fulfill his children's desires. Or do we believe that we are better parents than God? I mean, if your child, a small child, asks you for something and it won't hurt that child, then it's something that's beneficial and would delight your child's heart and you have the wherewithal to do it, would, don't you usually give it to your child? Not just our needs, but our desires. 
You say, well, God isn't that way. So what you're really saying is that you're a better parent than God. I would urge you not to think that way. Do you give your children their needs but ignore their desires? Of course you don't, and neither does God. In fact, God is so eager to answer that he relishes answering sometimes even before we ask. Here's what we read in Isaiah 65, 24. This is a lovely text, Isaiah 65, 24. He says to Israel, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. It's as though we come to the Lord sometimes and say, Lord, I need, he says, stop. I know that, here it is. I know. Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan writer, said, God's performances outstrip his promises. Those promises, of course, are to those who trust in Jesus and love his word. They're not just indiscriminate promises to everybody. We read in John chapter 15 and verse 7, If if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If you live a life where your back is turned to God, you can't expect that God will answer your prayers. Nonetheless, if you're turned toward God, even if you're sinful, turn toward God with a heart toward him and faith in him. Expect him to answer. If there are uh, even two of you here at Trinity Evangelical that can pray in faith, here's God's promise from the lips of Jesus Christ in Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you, Jesus is saying, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's not a suggestion. That's a promise. These promises are simple and direct and clear. Listen to Jesus from Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, whatsoever you things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Pour out your heart in prayer in secret, and God will answer openly. Listen to Matthew six six. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What about knowledge and making decisions? Oh, how desperately we need that. We don't know which road to take. I'm not referring to decisions between right and wrong. We know we should always choose what's right. But sometimes we have decisions and there are two or three or four right decisions. And we don't know which way to turn. Well, bank on this promise from James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a promise. Some of you here right now, you're thinking you have important decisions to make. You don't know what to do. You say, look at this, and here are the benefits, and I look at this, there are benefits here, there are different benefits. I don't know which one. I'm just just kind of flummoxed. I don't know what to do. Well, you don't have to remain in that condition. You know what James says? Ask God. Ask God to lead you. He'll give wisdom. Oh, by the way, am I quoting too many scriptures this morning? Am I quoting too many? I'm just hovering at the surface. Sometimes take an hour at just reading a list of God's promises to answer all the prayers of his people. God doesn't get angry when we hold him to his promises. I love the story in Judges 6, that remarkable story of Gideon. Have you read that story before? Do you know it? Israel had been subjugated by the Midianites because of their apostasy, because of their idolatry. And the Bible says the Midianites were like just a multitude of grasshoppers who overwhelmed the whole land of Israel. And they pressed the Jews into hiding in caves and dens, and they stole all of their produce. 
Oh, what a lamentable, sad, burdensome time it was. But the Jews cried to the Lord, and the Lord, who delights to deliver, who delights to deliver. You say, well, I know somebody is just way down in sin and addiction, and it's terrible, and do you know what God does? If that person will in the least repent and start taking a turn, God says, what's that? What's that? Because God loves to forgive those who repent. He loves He runs to do that. The Jews cried to the Lord. And the Lord sent an angel to a simple young man, Gideon. And uh, the angel called him to lead the Jews to defeat the Midianites. And the angel confronted him and said, Oh, you mighty man of God. And I can imagine Gideon, who had been hiding out because he was afraid, saying, What? Who are you talking to? Mighty man of God. Here is just little old me, Gideon. Listen to Gideon's initial response in verse 13. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? He asks the angel of the Lord, which could very well have been the son of God, this angel of the Lord. And listen to what he asks. Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Hmm. Now note that the angel of the Lord, again, quite possibly the son of God himself, he didn't get angry. Isn't that interesting? Gideon was kind of annoyed. He says, if I am who you say I am, if I'm supposed to do this, why has all this befallen us? Where are all these promises of miracles? Where are they? And God didn't get angry. You know why God doesn't get angry with us when we are annoyed because we don't like that he has fulfilled his promises? Because it means that we take the promises seriously. God will not get angry with you if by faith you get on your face before God and say, God, you promised to do this. Why aren't you doing it? That doesn't make God angry. Because it means you take his promises seriously. Gideon, you see, had been reading his Bible. Gideon knew God's promises. He held God to his promises. We should hold God to his promises. God delights when we hold him to his promises. But what about the promises to the church, not just individuals? The biblical teaching that poses the greatest embarrassment to the pessimists in the church is Jesus' initial mention of the church in Matthew 16, verse 18. You know about that in his pledge to Peter, Matthew 16, 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, what was Jesus trying to say? He declares he's laying the foundation of his new covenant people. And he depicts this church that he's building as an attack on the gates of Hades. That is the place of the departed dead. Now, gates, of course, you probably know this. I hope you do, are stationary. Gates don't have any role in offensive warfare. So this odd metaphor conveys that when the church storms Hades' gates, Satan's gates won't be able to hold out against the holy attack. That's what this is saying. Now, in the ancient world, gates symbolically represent authority and power. Not so much today. You could drive into most cities, right? But this is the ancient world. Large cities were protected by very thick 
tall, massive walls, and the city's ingress and egress were limited to these gates. If you wanted to go out or come in, you had to come in through the gates. Those gates were imposing, and they were frequently inlaid with gold and other precious metals. They were designed to project strength and intimidation when you look at these great and mighty gates of this city. Well, when Jesus promises that the gates of Hades or of death won't prevail when the church unleashes its attack, he's declaring the most imposing weapon in the satanic arsenal will be trampled by the church. That's what he's saying. That's a promise to the church. And remember... God keeps his promises. (coughs) And then consider, as we move to a close, the promises of our Lord's second appearing. The parousia, we call it. At our Lord's ascension, this is what the angels told the first disciples in Acts 1. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That's a promise. Again and again. We read of these promises in the New Testament, but some of the most beautiful ones are in the Old Testament. This is one of my favorite from Malachi 3, verses 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. Isn't that beautiful? When the saints are talking to one another, "Mm, I'm listening, what are they saying? So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord. And who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. My jewels, he calls us. Almost all of God's promises are conditional. That is, they're contingent on something that we do. In an overwhelming number of cases, that condition is simple faith. We take God at his word. We'll be blessed with eternal life if we trust in Christ for salvation. We will not be blessed with eternal life if we do not Trust in Christ. 1 John 5, 12 declares, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. We'll find the Lord if we seek him, we read in Jeremiah 29, 13. If our lives are marked by obedience, God will hear our prayers. Listen to the promise from Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Those of you who in the quietness of your home meditate on the Lord and you think of his name and you desire to please him, you are included in the Lord's book of remembrance and you are his jewels. And then there's the wonderful splendor of the promise in Daniel 12, 2 and 3, another one of my favorites. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. will be resurrected and live forever with the triune God in the new heavens and the new earth that is on this present earth resurrected as God comes down to dwell with us eternally. This is God's infallible promise, and this is the word of the Lord. In conclusion, God's promises are never ambivalent. God never hedges. He doesn't play word games. Here's 2 Corinthians 1, 18 to 20. But as God is faithful, Paul is writing, our word to you is not yes and no. 
For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, Paul says, and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God. All the promises are yes and amen. Paul is referring to an echo when he says that. Basically what he's saying is God makes a promise. It's decisive. It's clear cut. Yes. And we respond, amen. We agree. That's what he said. They're not yes and no. God doesn't say, now here's a promise. But you know, I need to, there's like nuances here. I'm not sure if I can quite pull this off. Paul says, no, not that. There's nothing fickle or unstable or reserved about God's promises. President Harry Truman is alleged to have said, God, give me a one-handed economist. All my economists come to me and say, on one hand, but on the other hand, give me a one-handed economist. God never says on the one hand, but then on the other. God declares, here's my promise, and you can bank on it. If this is true, and it incontestably is, we should live in the promises. Not just every single day, but many times a day, bringing God's promises to mind and reminding him of those promises and marching forward boldly and joyfully in faith. I said, live in the promises. I'm going to close with this statement. I don't know who first made it. If I would, I'd give him or her credit. I pasted it on the inside cover of several of my Bibles. I hope that you'll ponder it before I close in prayer. Our good God, our ever-flowing God, our God of yes and amen has always been able to promise far more than we are able to believe. God loves to bury our finite faith under an avalanche of promises and gifts. Let us pray. Forgive us, O God, for not taking your promises so seriously. Lord, help us to live in these promises and believe in these promises and act on these promises. Lord, we know our, your son himself while on the earth was limited Though you are sovereign, O God, you are willing to be limited by unbelief. You read of him going into cities and he was doing great works, but in many, a number of cities he could do very little works because of the unbelief. And Lord, he said, he marveled. He was stunned. Why is there such unbelief here? Why don't these people trust me? Lord, forgive us for limiting your work by our unbelief. Encourage us today. May we leave with great joy and great hope, great confidence, great victory fighting and defeating the world, the flesh, and the devil, knowing that you love to make promises and you love to keep promises. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom all of your promises are yes and amen. And to that we say, amen.